What is the darkest or the driest place you've ever been? I want you to think about that for a second. Then, right, what I want you to do right now is just turn to somebody right there in your row, in your pod. I want you to turn to somebody there and I want you to share with them either the darkest place you've ever been or the driest place you've ever been. You've got 60 seconds, ready, go. We're going to look at a very dark place and a very dry place today uh, as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 22. So if you want to turn there, we'll get started in 1 Samuel chapter 22 in a second. But uh, I just wanted to get a little taste of that dryness and a little feeling of that darkness in your minds as we begin. Um, the driest place I've ever been, it used to be called Bombay, it's now Mumbai, but I was in, in India when I was 19 years old where it thunderstormed three times in one day, and in between those thunderstorms, the ground completely dried up. So it just poured. I'm talking about rain in the city that came up to your knees and you had to pull your pants up as you walked through the city. And then it would completely dry, and then it would rain again. I know it sounds, with rain, it's not dry, but in between the rain, it was so humid and so dry. I'll never forget that. The darkest place I've ever been was in my 20s when we went, a, a group from this church went cave splunking. And I, I remember uh, at one point, the guide had us turn off all of our lights. And that phrase, you know, you can't see the hand in front of your face. Well, that's true. When you're underground in a cave and you can't see your hand in front of your face, that is dark. And when I think about that, even now, I, I begin to get heart palpitations as I try to think what would have happened if we would have had no lights and we would have had to get out. It just creeps me out, even to this day. <laughs> We're going to follow somebody today into some very dark places and into a very dry place, not only physically, but also spiritually. And we're going to answer the question, what can I do when I'm in a dark place in my life? What can I do when I'm in a dry, dry place in my life? And we've all been there, and some of you are there even today. What can we do as followers of Christ? Well, the story so far is we're in 1 Samuel, in the series in 1 Samuel, the story so far, we have the prophet Samuel who anoints the first king of Israel, that's Saul, who quickly compromises his commitment to God and his commitment to his people. And God declares that the kingdom would be torn away from him and given to a man that's willing to follow God after his own heart. And Saul starts to spiral out of control when he hears the kingdom will be taken from him. And meanwhile, Samuel goes to a shepherd boy named David a man after God's own heart, and he anoints him to be the next king uh, in obedience to God's word. And so David is anointed. He's anointed, but he's not appointed. Not yet. He's in this holding pattern in, in a God's plan for his life. He's in this time of waiting, just, just waiting and waiting for God to make him what he's called him to be, and that is a king. So Saul is in Gibeah up there, you can see on the map. He's in Gibeah, that's his headquarters, and David is on the run. Saul is chasing him throughout the, the, the area of Judah. And uh, David, we're going to find out today, ends up in this place called Adulam, 
And then he gets, uh, he gets into a place called Kela, and then he ends up in, in this place called Ziph, and eventually in this place called Horsh. But if you look at this, at this map, you can see he is keeping a wide berth from Gibeah. Because none of this sits very well with King Saul. He's envious. He's jealous. David's a threat to be eliminated. He puts a contract out on his life. And so David is on the run being attacked from every angle. The pressure is constant. The threat is real. And even though he's holding on to an incredible promise, his grip on that promise is beginning to weaken. Well, where does he end up? In 1 Samuel chapter 22, he ends up in a cave as he's on the run. Let's read the first few verses. David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Ajalam. When his brothers and his father's household heard about it, they went down to him there. It was probably good to see family, right? Look who else was there. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him, and he became their commander. About 400 men were with him. So David is forced into a cave. Let me stop right there and ask you, have you ever been forced into a cave? I'm not talking about spelunking with a guide and a light. Have you ever felt like you're in this holding pattern in God's plan for your life and you're just waiting and waiting and it doesn't seem to be clearing? You can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And when we add a little difficulty and some pressure and, and some questions and some, and some loneliness, friend, when that happens, you are in a cave with David. God has something to say to you today in that cave. What did David do while he was in the cave? While he was under all that pressure. We're going to get there in, in a second, but I want you to see what happens next. Skip on over to 1 Samuel chapter 23, and let's see what happens next. So David was in the cave, and when David was told, look, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are looting the threshing floors, he inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? The Lord answered him, go attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, here in Judah, we are afraid. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces? Once again, David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered him, Go down to Calah, for I'm going to give the Philistines into your hand. So the men were afraid. And fear can keep us in our caves. But we just sang, fear doesn't stand a chance, right? When we stand in God's love, and when we have God's word in front of us, fear doesn't stand a chance. And so David and his men went to Calah, they fought the Philistines and carried off their livestock. He inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines and saved the people of Calah. Now Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephod down with him when he fled to David at Calah. Saul was told that David had gone to Calah, and Saul said to himself, God has delivered him into my hands. Boy, was he off. For David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars, and Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring the aphod. And David said, Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. 
Will the citizens of Kalaz surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. And again, David asked, will the citizens of Kalaz surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, it grew now from 400 to 600. They left Kalah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Kalah, he did not go there. David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. So David leaves his cave against the advice of his men to save a city in open territory, exposing himself to his enemy down in the lowlands of Judah. But he did it because God said to do it. And after saving the citizens of Kelah, what do they do? They betray, they betray him and they plot against him to turn him over to Saul. <laughs> now, that's not ever happened to any of you. Am I right? Now you do the right thing to no avail. You do the right thing and you end up paying for it. Well, it happens to David all the time in 1 Samuel. How does he hold it together? Oh, where, and where is he now? He went from a cave to the desert. He's from a cave and now he's in the desert hills. Verse 14 says, David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Not by himself. There were at least 600 other people with him. This is actually a picture of the desert hills that he would have been staying in. He was in a cave, and now he's holed up in the desert. And the question is, how did he keep his heart right before God? How do we cultivate a heart for God when we're in the caves and in the deserts of our lives? When the temptation is to lash out at those who are betraying us, or to just get bummed out because it is so dark and it is so dry. When no matter what we do, even when we do the right thing, we get the short end of the stick. When our spirits are dark, they're dry, there's no light, there's no water. When the promises of God seem like they're buried underneath the sand of the desert or they're hidden away undetected in the darkness of the cave, we can't really see what God's doing. What do we do? Well, what did David do when he was in the cave? What did David do when he was in the desert? We don't have to guess because David wrote four psalms. He wrote two psalms while in the cave, and he wrote two psalms while in the desert of Ziph, telling us exactly what he felt, telling us exactly what he prayed and what he did when he was in the cave and when he was in the desert. And God has preserved these psalms for us in his holy word, which is amazing to tell us what to do when we're trapped in the dark, lonely caves in our lives and when we feel like the spigot has run dry in our own lives. Psalm 142 is entitled, A Maskell of David When He Was in the Cave, A Prayer. And Psalm 57's title, if you were to look back at Psalm 57, says, For the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy of David, a miktam, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. 
These two psalms are his cave songs, and we're going to look at them briefly. And then Psalms 63 and 54 were written in the desert. So we know what David did when he was in the desert. Psalm 63 begins with this introduction, a psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. And that's where Ziph is. And Psalm 54 was written, um, it says, for the director of music with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, is not David hiding among us? So those are the two Desert songs. And I would just want to give one principle for each psalm. We won't read through all of those, but you can do that this week. Two cave principles and two desert principles. So let's start with, with the cave songs and Psalm 142. I have a few verses here in Psalm 142 for you to look at. What do the cave songs tell us to do? What do they tell us to do when we're in our cave in our life? The first thing it says here in Psalm 142 is to cry, to cry out until you're comforted. Psalm 142 is a, a, a prayer of just crying out to God. Listen to these verses, 1 through 3 and 6 and 7. I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him I tell my troubles. When my spirit grows faint within me, it's you who watch over my way. Listen to my cry. I'm in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. Set me free from my prison, that I might praise your name. David in the cave is crying out. Look at these words, cry aloud, pour out. My complaints, my troubles, my spirit grows faint faint. It's like he's spiritually dehydrated. My cry. When you read Psalm 142, as David is in the cave of Adullam, do you think he's holding anything back? Not by these words. You look at these words, he's not holding anything back. And yet some of us, when we pray, we're like, I don't want to bother God with my little troubles. He has bigger things to take care of. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Or I don't think God wants to hear my complaints. Man, the word complaint is right in Psalm 142. You can complain to God. David did. That, that kind of thinking is a massive misunderstanding of who God is. It's, it's a misunderstanding of the love of God. It's a misunderstanding of the power of God. Well, we don't go to him and cry out to him. You know, like... When we think that way, it's like we feel God needs to save up his energy for war in the Middle East. So, you know, I don't want to exhaust him with my little things. That's a misunderstanding of the power of God. He wants to hear it. And it's a misunderstanding of the deep, deep love of God. The, what he, what he, the love he has for David, the love he has for us. It's inexhaustible. And he has endless strength for every problem, even the little ones. So we can cry out to him. So when you're in your darkest cave or in your driest desert, cry before God and he'll comfort you. This summer, we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Start reading it. The Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 4 says, blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. 
for they'll be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, does crying make you uncomfortable? I don't know what kind of family you came from, but quite possibly it, crying makes you uncomfortable. I cried two weeks ago from this platform after Ashley sang that song about God rescuing people. And before I started my sermon, I apologized. Well, I need to apologize for apologizing because I shouldn't have apologized. I felt uncomfortable crying, but I shouldn't. I shouldn't. Psalm 142 says, cry before God, cry aloud to him, and that's where you'll find comfort. Because if God is in love with this world and it's broken and it's in need of rescue, we should have tears. So let's not apologize for that. David cried in his cave and his tears became prayers that God heard. And in verse 3, he said, God's watching over my way. And in verse 5, he's my refuge. Let's go to the other cave psalm, Psalm 57. What else does David tell us to do when we're in our caves? Psalm 57 says, we need to sing until we are steadfast. Sing in the middle of a cave. That's what David did. Verse 1, have mercy on me, my God. Have, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I'll take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. Verse 7, my heart, O oh God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. Not the dawn awakening you, you know, it's kind of bright, you wake up. He says, I'm going to awaken the dawn with singing. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. David sings in his cave. You know, singing in, in worship has a way of putting to rest the doubts and the arguments and the, the retorts that come up in our minds. And we entertain all of that in our dark times, don't we? Whether it's the flesh or whether it's somebody else or the world, whether it's Satan, you know, we, we get these arguments against our faith and they get very loud in our dark times. Singing chases that away. When we sing the truth, it chases them away. And you noticed uh, he didn't just listen to worship, he actually sang. So the message he needed to hear traveled from his heart, through his brain, and then out his mouth. Kind of involved everything. He sang in his cave. He turned that dark cave into a house of worship. And that's what he did. Even while he was on the run, even while Saul with his larger forces were in hot pursuit, his heart was steadfast because he worshiped, because he sang. And if I want to replace a shaky heart, a fearful heart while I'm in my cave, if I want to replace that with a steadfast heart, I need to start singing. Even if it's really bad, just get alone in the car, you know, no one else will hear you. Keep the windows up um, and sing. And sing even when you don't feel like it. Do you think David felt like singing, waking up in his cave day after day, day, day after day, with all those people who were in debt and who were distressed and who were discontent around? Do you think he felt like singing? But in faith, he sang his way into a steadfast heart. 
and you can too. So in the cave, David said, I cried and I sang. That's what the cave songs tell us to do. How about the two desert songs? What do the two desert psalms tell us to do? Psalm 63 and Psalm 54. How do they encourage us when we're in the dry deserts in our lives? Psalm 63 is, is a very, very um, famous psalm. It's a favorite psalm for many of you. But did you know that David wrote this song when he was on the run? And when he was in the desert hills with those 600 men. Psalm 63 tells us to thirst until you're satisfied. Thirst until you're satisfied. Let's read the first few verses of Psalm 63. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. He sang this in the desert hills. Don't ignore the thirst. When you get that feeling, that sensation of frustration, frustration with life and your heart is dry, don't ignore it. Don't push it down and try to gut it out. Don't self-medicate the thirst that you feel. God has put that in you to cause you to thirst for Him. Sometimes we go after things that are like salt water. I mean, it's water, but it doesn't quench your thirst. There's stuff that doesn't quench the thirst that just makes it worse. We can do that, whether it's busyness, whether it's addictions, we go to things that won't quench the thirst. They're like mirages in the desert. They're just empty promises and empty cisterns. So when you, know, when you feel that thirst, you know that thirst is there, acknowledge it. God has put it there. It's real, and it's real deep. And it's not just a thirst for water. If there was anybody who could say, I am thirsty for water, it was David in the desert, right? But what does he say in the psalm? I thirst for you, for you. He realizes that even if he could quench his thirst for water, his spirit's thirst would still be groaning inside. Even if he had enough food for everyone, he would still be hungering for God. His deepest thirst is really spiritual. It's not physical. And I thought this week, could it be that God allows the dry times, allows us to walk through the desert to remind us that our true thirst is for him and not for all this other stuff? When we seek God with this kind of thirst, verse 5 says, we will be fully satisfied as with the riches of, richest of foods. You know, it doesn't say we will be satisfied with the richest of foods. That would be awesome. But that's not what it says. It says, we'll be satisfied as with the richest of foods. Our spirits will be satisfied as if we would be satisfied physically with the richest of foods. 
What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When you're dry spiritually, that's when you need to get out your Bible. That's when you need to pray for satisfaction. That's when you need to go to that favorite podcast and maybe even re-listen to a message. That's when you need to hunger and thirst for righteousness because that's when God will fill you. You do the opposite of what you really feel like doing when you're in the desert. You feel like dying. <laughs> you do the opposite. And remember, when you fill something, whether it's your watering can like we did this morning or maybe you filled your coffee mug this morning, it doesn't get filled all at once. It's not like, Poosh, it's filled. It may take time. It may take time. So don't expect a, a quick swig from the Bible to fill you up. Be serious and honest about that thirst. The second principle from the desert, and our last one for this morning, as we ask this question, what do I do when I'm in the caves and in the deserts of my life, when I've been forced into a desert, is to trust. Is to trust until you triumph. Psalm 54, written in the desert. Again, get the picture. David is in the desert. He's going from hills to hills and down into the wilderness trying to escape Saul's pursuit. He says, Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. That's not a metaphor for David. People without regard for God. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. You have delivered me from all my troubles and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. Triumph. Trust until you triumph. God did not save David in a moment. He didn't bring a fleet of helicopters and massive troop movements and save him. He delivered him over time as we read the rest of 1 Samuel. He gave him eventual triumph, though, over his enemies in his own time. He didn't pluck him out of the desert and plop him down in a bed of roses. It was a trek of trust, one step at a time, through that desert. It was what many people call a journey of faith. Notice verse 1, where his faith, where his faith rests. Your name and your might. Not in my circumstances, in your name and in your might, that is where his faith rests. And verse 4 says, the Lord is the one who sustains me. He's sustaining him along this trek of trust. So our trust, if it was in our circumstances, would be very flimsy and fleeting. We don't trust in our circumstances. Can you imagine if David put his trust in his circumstances? Look at the people that were with him. The discontented, the dis distressed, and, and those who were in debt. He was in a cave, and then he's, now he's in a desert. He was betrayed by the people of Kelah. If he put his faith in his circumstances, he would be a mess. But our trust is in a faithful, loving, and strong God who has a plan for every one of us. And it requires his own timing to execute that plan. And so we trust until we triumph. So we cry, we sing, we thirst, and we trust. 
That's what David did in the caves and in the deserts that he was in. And those caves and those desert experiences were part of his becoming what God called him to be. It was part of his becoming of what God called him to be. He was a shepherd, but he needed to become a king. So God put him through the caves and the deserts. Even the men he met in the cave, those distressed and discontented guys, you know what they were becoming? We read later in 2 Samuel that those were David's future mighty men of valor. Even the caves and the deserts for them was their training ground with David's heart leading the way. They had to go through the cave in the desert to become those mighty men of valor. And as David ran from Saul, he traveled the country that would one day be his kingdom. You see, there was a lot more going on than just, man, I'm in a cave. Ugh, we're in the desert. There's a lot more going on. The caves and the deserts were part of God's plan to shape David into the person he called him to be, the king, and a king after God's own heart. And friends, if you're in a dark cave right now, or if you're in a very dry desert, or you can see one coming in the horizon, God is shaping you. God is shaping you into royalty, because if you're a Christ follower, you're a daughter of the king. You're a son of the king. You're anointed by the Holy Spirit, but you may not be appointed yet to the place where God wants you. Cry. Sing, David says. Thirst, don't ignore that thirst and trust. So if it's tough right now, get real with God. And, and when I mean get real with God, cry out to him in your times with him, with your truest feelings, and, and know that he loves you, that he wants to hear from you. Nothing is too small for him. Make your cave into a house of worship. We have so many tools that we could use in our modern world to get God's promises musically past the arguments in our minds and right to our hearts. Make your cave a house of worship. Pursue a thirst for the only thing that satisfies, and that is a personal relationship with Christ. Reject the things that promise satisfaction, but that can never deliver, and instead go to the one who himself calls himself, I am the living water. That means the water that never dies. And take one step at a time on that track of trust. That's all, that's all it takes. As we've looked at the life of David in 1 Samuel, he couldn't see the end from the beginning. He took one step of trust in that trek, and then the next one, and then the next one. And each one in faith that our vindicating God will eventually lead you to a place of triumph. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would shake our hearts up so that we can see you as the water that never dies, as the living water, because we need it. We need it now. We need it every day. And there are those who are in the desert. They desperately need it. God, I pray for them. I pray, God, that they would come to you. We sang that it's from this darkness that you will lead us, 
because you are the Lord our God. We sang that just a few moments ago. And those who are in the cave right now, Lord, I pray that you would lead them. God, that they would reach out and they would grab your hand because you are the light of the world. And we need that light in our caves. But Lord, it only comes when we grab onto your hand. You're the light of all and all that we need, we sang already today. And so for those who are in their caves, caves that you have ordained for them, caves that may be frustrating to them, I'm sure they are. Lord, those caves are part of their becoming who you want them to be, who you've planned for them to be. God, we pray that, that we would set aside our misunderstandings of who you are, that you do want to hear our complaints, you do want to love us in those complaints and troubles. We set aside that misunderstanding. Or that, Lord, you have a limited amount of time and a limited amount of strength, so why would we bother you with our problems? God, we confess that that is just, that's sin. That's a misunderstanding of who you are. Fill us with a, a true and a righteous hunger and thirst for who you really are, God. And then God, as David said, he'll turn and praise you before others. So send us out as you satisfy us as with the richest of foods to send out a message to those around us. Here is the God who satisfies. Here is the God who brings light. Here is the God who brings living water. Send us out as you did with David. We pray these things Jesus, in your name, and we love you. Amen.